look into this passage. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the issues that faced the Apostle Paul so many years ago in a faraway place are the same issues that we face in our lives and in this world in which we live. So we pray that you might, by your word, help us to see and have eyes to see the real issues of life and to understand our desperate need for Christ and the gospel and the need that so many other people have as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. An artist has an amazing trained ability to make careful observation. When you think about it, a, a painter, for example, carefully observes the shades of color of, let's say, an object before him or her, noticing the intensity of shadows, noticing the degrees of light, and they're going to make sure to uh, uh, make sure that that is uh, conveyed in the painting that they're doing in front of them. This is realistic painting, not modern painting. I don't know what they do with modern painting. That to me is like close your eyes, use your imagination, and make up something. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I like realistic painting. Uh, Joyce and I walked through the Riboli Center up in Stony Brook uh, just the other day. Um, it is a, a brand new uh, art museum uh, with the paintings of Joe Riboli. And uh, he recently passed away, but uh, some of his, a number of his 3,000 paintings that he uh, did during his lifetime are on permanent display there. And he painted uh, everyday objects. He painted um, very familiar uh, landscapes and sites you see right here on Long Island. Uh, and one of the brochures, they quoted him as, he captured light and shadows with remarkable vision. That is an accurate statement. If you look at his paintings, it seems like, at least it did to me, you stand back from it, you look at it, you look like you're looking at a photograph. It's incredible. It really is. I, I commend you to go look at his paintings. Um, to my untrained eyes, I overlook all kinds of qualities and details of little things to see around us. But an artist has eyes to see what many of us are oblivious to see. Now, I've been thinking about that because here is the Apostle Paul entering into this impressive city of Athens. It is the cultural capital of the world at the time. Uh, here he sees impressive buildings on all sides. He sees temples. He sees artwork, all sorts of sculptures. Everywhere you look, it's all over the place. But Paul sees more than that. Here in the city that was the birth, were the birthplace of democracy, here in this city that's the home to the greatest university in the world at that time, in the city where it's the hub of philosophy and, and, uh, and literature, Paul begins to look around the city, and he has a keen and insightful ability to see more than just what the average person would see. He walks around the city and look at verse 16 of chapter 17 of Acts. He noticed he was beholding the city full of idols. Literally, a city smothered in idols. The term there in that verse for beholding is not just the term you could have used 
that says he looked at it, he glanced at it. Nope, not that word. It's a, a word that means to ponder, to look more deeply at what's going on there. It's the word from which we get the English word theorize. He contemplated the sad spiritual reality that at the core of this impressive metropolitan city, sitting on the hilltop there in Athens, it was devoted to idols. Paul considered it a tragedy that in a city where there's so much God-given talent, because you look at all of the incredible works of art that are on display there, you look at the evidence of so much learning and knowledge and insight that the people have there, the city's population was by and large devoted to the adoration of and worship of not God, not the true and living God, but lifeless, man-made idols. The first point this morning we're realizing is that there Paul encountered what you and I are going to encounter in this world, and that is the reality of rampant idolatry. The reality of it. In Paul's day, it was something you couldn't miss. It's like 7-Elevens or Dunkin' Donuts. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere, right? Everywhere you turn. Another Starbucks. Oh, there's another one. You know, it's like they're everywhere. That's what it was for Paul. All kinds of statues, all kinds of idols. But for us in our world, did you know that idols are also everywhere? You say, I don't see a bunch of statues everywhere. You know, the Bible talks about not the statue kind of idols. It does a lot of talking about that. But the Bible also talks about heart idols. You want to write in your notes, Ezekiel chapter 14 is a very interesting passage to look at sometime and meditate on. How God says there are people who are setting up idols in their hearts. Now, I could go on and on and on at this point and talk to you about some helpful things I've gleaned over the years about idols that have helped me and even some of my thoughts today, and I'll recommend two books to you. One is Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. He says he defines idolatry. He's a very helpful biblical counsel pastor. He says an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, our minds, or our affections more than God. Our hearts, our minds, or affections more than God. Tim Keller wrote a helpful book called Counterfeit Gods. Very short read. And he, of course, is quite intellectual. But he has a very helpful way of defining idols also. He says they are anything more important in you than God. That absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything you seek to give you what only God can give. You know, we struggle with idolatry as much as, if not more, than the people of the first century. Did you realize that? Some of the examples of heart idolatry, and I'll just list a few here. We could go on and on and on. There's endless numbers of idols that people have in their hearts. But it could be something like performance. That that becomes the thing that you really are obsessed and focused on in your life. You try to gain acceptance from other people or the approval of other people by performing a certain way. And you're striving to please other people more than you are really God. Or perfectionism, where you strive to meet your own standards and then therefore 
you're always basing your feelings on how well you perform based on your own, your own standards of performance. To other people, it's obsessing about their health and having the perfect body as they possibly can, whether on the outside or your physical strength or whatever, conditioning. Other people, it's the love of money. It's success. That your days, you think, oh, I had a good day. Why? Well, I got everything on, list on my list done. That's why you got a good day? Okay, maybe performance is something you value below it too much. Other people wish they could have a, a comfortable life. And they have the idol of comfort where they want, I want a hurt-free life and I want a problem-free life, a pain-free life. That's my goal. And so they'll do anything to avoid those kinds of challenges and problems that we inevitably are going to face. It could be the, the uh, idol of wanting to be respected or admired, one I struggle with, or being self-sufficient or independent, a person that hardly ever wants to depend on anybody. They want to be someone who's able to function on their own. Other people make it their ambition in life is to have certain attaining of athletic abilities and achievements. That's really what they strive for. Now again, are any one of these things bad in and of themselves? No. It's the degree to which we long for them and desperately desire them. Uh, again, we could go on and on. People want worldly pleasures as another idol, being in control. People who have an idol of their children, they make, a, they make their children into idols. It's terrible. Poor kid is smothering. Now Keller backs up and he looks at the bigger cultural phenomenons of what happens in our society and he says, you know, what are, let's boil it all down. What are the three most significant idols in our culture today? Money, sex, and power. I think he's obviously accurate on that, wouldn't you? you don't think so read the book he'll convince you it's pretty obvious but instead of honoring God as the ruler and the source of all things we humans tend to yearn to live independent of God to be autonomous to do anything we want without bowing to God and his authority it's a danger that we all face and according to another author, Richard Keyes, he says, instead of facing God, we tend to inflate things in this world to religious proportions. That is, we begin to, to, to crave them and to really yield and build our lives around them to inflate them to these religious proportions in order to fill the vacuum left because we've excluded God on the sidelines. So all of us are worshiping something or someone that's the way god wired us we naturally do that everybody worships something or someone the question is if we're not worshiping god the god of creation then we're left then we're worshiping the creation that god has made it's one or the other as a matter of fact so many of the idols that afflict our hearts are good things good things that have become ultimate things and so there are there are just rampant idols all around in our hearts and in the hearts of everybody you know notice secondly look at the reaction that paul had to rampant idolatry point number two reaction paul sensed the spiritual corruption of that city and he perceived that there is a spiritual bondage 
that was gripping the idolatrous hearts of the people who lived there. And look at verse 16. When he realized all that and looking around, his spirit was being provoked within him. Very interesting Greek term is used there, to be provoked. It is a term that could be translated seizure. Um, He was deeply moved, is another way of translating it. His spirit is is greatly distressed because of what he saw and what he realized was going on beyond just what he saw. His reaction was not just a momentary concern, but apparently there's something that just was an ongoing provocation. It was something that he just kept bothering him. Widespread devotion. As he looked around all these human idols, instead of offering devotion to God, all these people are just caught up in all these worthless idols. Interesting to think that Paul's response, the same term that found in that particular verse, verse 16, you take that same Greek word and you compare the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It was written after the Hebrew Bible, but they came along when the Greek culture started becoming widespread. They translated the Bible into Greek, and the same term is appeared in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 106. If you got your Bible, you want to look there. Psalm 106, you get God's reaction to idolatry. Guess what? Same word. Psalm 106, verse 28. Again, if you read this in the Greek Old Testament, you would find the same word. It says, the children of Israel join themselves to Baal, or the, the, which is another name they call it, Baal, located in Peor, and he ate sacrifices, they ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Obviously, they have their own uh, idol worship there. And thus, they provoked God to anger with their deeds. Idolatry provoked anger in God. Here is Paul, like God, having a heart that feels deep inward pain or agitation over the, f- the fact that so many of these sophisticated people were giving glory and honor to lifeless idols rather than rightfully, that which belonged to the living and true God. So my question for you and me this morning is, what do you observe? What do you theorize when you look around in the world today and you look and see below the surface of all the trends, the customs of our day, the thing that people really cherish, what they seem to be pursuing and going after, what they desire to a high-level degree. Do you see a culture that's submerged under the heavy weight of idols? Oh, man, you see it all around us. You say, well, what are you talking about? There's such widespread heart idolatry around us, and you see it by, for example, anger oftentimes is, if you really go to the bottom of it, is really the expression of People are not getting the idol they really want. If you think about it, anxiety reveals what it is that you really are longing or holding on to in your heart as your heart idol. The things that you're anxious about. When you see conflict become ratcheted up and people in a marriage or people who are uh, having a fallout or some sort of conflict, oftentimes you trace it back. And as Brad Bigney says, the sin beneath the sin 
is the idol of control. I want my way. And I'm not bending and I'm not flexing on this. Matter of fact, Brad Bigney says that in marriage, when you have a husband and wife who are in serious conflict, he says that it's because they've hooked each other's idols. When you see people with compulsive behavior, where they're driven, can't seem to get out of it, it's an indicator, obviously, of some sort of idol in their heart. You say, well, what's the idol in my heart? What's the idol in your heart? I prepared a little sheet. I should have, if I was organized, I would have put it in the bulletin. But um, I made some copies uh, that are available underneath the, the, um, the mailboxes in the narthex. If you want to grab one, they're yellow copies. They have a little worksheet that you could use for several days as you work through the process of praying and asking the Lord to help show you, answering some questions and kind of thing, to see if you could surface some of the things that you might struggle with in your heart. But indeed, as you think about this, does your heart break over the offense of idolatry that takes hold in your own heart? And do you sense that the more you think about it, what John Calvin said really is true, that our hearts are nothing more than idol factories. Factories that continually have more and more idols. You think, well, I've I may have addressed that idol in my heart. i got another one that's bothering me. In other words, there's multiple idols, idolatry going on in our hearts at any given time. Do you react to that? Does it bother you? Does it make you aware that something's out of order here in your life, in the life of other people? That brings me to my third point, and that is, what was the reason that Paul had such a strong reaction to this rampant idolatry? The reason for it. Well, he was deeply impacted. The question is, what would provoke his heart? What's going on inside of him that he reacts so strongly? And I would suggest to you, under letter A, he had a passion for the glory of God. A passion for the glory of God. You say, where did you get that? That's not in the text. Well, I would suggest that you look at a verse, I believe that Paul was familiar with, Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8. It's in Pew Bible, page 863, on the bottom of the page. This is a critical verse, a one that we must understand if we're to understand God's perspective, which I believe became Paul's perspective, on why idolatry, we would have a strong reaction against it. We read in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images or to idols. This is God speaking, saying, listen, I have my glory, and it is not something that should be shared with others. In other words, he alone is the living, true, and creator God. Why are the things that I create getting glory that I deserve? And so God's reaction to idolatry we could say, is rooted in his holy jealousy. Now, I'm not talking about the petty, selfish jealousy that some people say, oh, I wish I had that purse, or I wish I had that car. No, not that, not that kind of jealousy. We're talking about a jealousy that involves God's reaction, his holy resentment, when there are rivals 
that come into a, a situation they have no business being in competition with him. So in a, in, a, in a proper marriage, it is appropriate to have jealousy for one spouse and not to have someone else sharing their spouse. That's an appropriate thing. Well, God, it's all the more appropriate when he's the one that's made us for himself. You say, well, is that taught in Scripture very widely? Well, how about the Ten Commandments? That's pretty basic, right? Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. There we read, God said, You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? A jealous God. God's a jealous God. He insists on having undivided loyalty on our part. He insists on having our adoration shown to Him alone. We are made for His glory. And God is passionate that we who are made in His image, that we would treasure Him, that we would glorify Him, that we would give Him the honor as the one true and living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He does not want us to be adoring and treasuring other gods. So look at Paul's reaction then to this idolatrous city in Athens. His reaction is not one of curiosity, like, isn't that strange? Look at all these statues. Wow. He doesn't walk around saying, oh, what a pity. Look at these people. They're just so backward. He doesn't walk away saying indifference, like, eh, what are you going to do? People are going to do what they're going to do. He looks around. His strong reaction is based on his vision of God. His own appreciation and worship of God has impacted the way in which he looks at other people. He longed to see God glorified. He longed to see God worshipped. He longed to see God treasured, not just by himself, but by everyone. Why? Because he and his understanding, his vision of God, had impacted his view of reality. His motivation for gospel ministry was not rooted in his passion to make a name for himself. He didn't say, I'm out there to be, become the greatest missionary that's ever lived. I want to have all kinds of people who will say, yeah, look at the church he started here. Look at the church he started there. And the long list of them. No, look at Acts 21, verse 13. Just a few pages over, Acts 21, 13. Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound, that means to be arrested, but even to die at Jerusalem. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm doing it for the person of Christ. I want his, his, his glory and his gospel, his mission to be advanced. Also in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, we read Paul say this, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Why? For his name's sake. That's what drove Paul. That's what motivated him. He lived to make much of God. Not to make a name for himself, but to have sinful people appreciate and worship the one whose name is the name above all names. Could it be said of you or me that there's any inkling or any drop of jealousy in our hearts for the honor and glory of God? Do you yearn for God to be loved, to be served, be enjoyed by all 
who bear His image? Is that a part of your life in which it really gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in life? That's really what is a passion of your heart? Is your heart ever provoked by those who dishonor God? Those who defy God's rightful rule? Does it trouble you when your heart is captured by the deceitfulness of your own idols in your heart? Do you ever mourn over that? And I would even make it more practical and just say, what motivates you to witness and share the gospel? Or what motivates you to not share the gospel? Is it because of idols? Because you don't want people to think a certain way about you? Or is your desire to do it is because you want God's greatness to be appreciated, His glory to be further expanded in the world? I wonder what, if you really expose what goes on in terms of what drives us to do what we do or what drives us to not do what we don't seem to be pursuing or doing, it might reveal some rather disappointing things about our own heart idolatry. But let me just say this. The gospel is the only cure for hearts that seek our own glory. It's the gospel. And that leads me to my fourth point. Paul's response toward those who involved who are involved in such rampant idolatry. I shouldn't have said Paul's response. There's really two responses here. I'd start off with, first of all with God's response to a world of where there's rampant idolatry. Christianity teaches that God's response to worldwide rebellion and heart idolatry by those that he made by the people that he made to honor, love, and serve him is to be provoked. Provoked in two ways. Provoked both in holy love and mercy and in holy wrath. You see, if God responded only in some sort of rejection against sinners and said, I want nothing to do with you, get away from me, if that's his response against sinners like you and me in our idolatry, we would be left with a lifetime of striving to somehow gain his favor. Striving and endlessly trying harder and harder to do better and better so that God would somehow allow us to be closer to him. Oftentimes that's really boiled down to other world religions. That's what you get. But if God's response were that the, um, again, the distortion by so many people in the world of saying, well, he's only going to have sentimental love toward these idolaters, people who don't really appreciate him or love him and treasure him, then really there'd be no reason why we would strive after anything that's just, anything that would be honorable in, our, in how we live, because there's no reason to be concerned about right or wrong, really. But it's only the God of the Bible that maintains this very delicate balance. It's a unique balance, really, when you think about it, between justice and love. And that is, is really what is revealed uniquely in the cross of Christ. God sent his only sinless son to bear the punishment we deserve to deal with that element of wrath so that he might free us from this just condemnation that we deserve to have. Because we are idolaters, and we continue to be idolaters. 
Even more amazing, though, is that the Bible says that Jesus demonstrated this selfless love by offering himself in our place on that cross. And because Jesus, because of Jesus, God welcomes all who repent, all who turn from idols, all who trust in him alone. God welcomes them. Amazing love, an adoptive love, an elevating love, a treasuring love. He begins to treasure us, as we were saying last Wednesday night in our Bible study. He is saying, you're well-pleasing in my sight because we are united to Christ. It is Christianity, he says, only the God of the Bible balances a holy hatred for sin with gracious love, with gracious affection, and that he would die and rescue and adopt those who spurned him and worshipped other false gods. Do you have a response to God in light of that that says, Lord Jesus, I am amazed at your love, and I'm also motivated to deal with the fact that I am going to face your wrath someday, and therefore I come to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, you save me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for living and being raised to life for me. Have you done that? As an idolater, I beg you, I urge you, deal with that area of your life. Come to God on his terms and come to find in Christ a true and full salvation. And the last thing I want to add here is that Paul's response in what he saw there in Athens Again, he did not react with disgust. He didn't walk away in a huff, throw his hands up and say, Oh, you people, there's no hope for you. Here is Paul who at one time himself was caught up in the blindness of his own idol of performance. And he was dramatically transformed by the gospel of grace. And so Paul, out of this grateful compassion in his heart, he makes known what? The gospel of God. <laughs> and so verse 18, the latter part of verse 18 says, Paul proclaimed Jesus and the resurrection. He insisted there is only one supreme, only one all-powerful, personal, living God. And this God was revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who's raised from the dead, and Jesus' resurrection is very significant for Paul because what he's saying here is that Jesus alone has power over death. Beyond that, Jesus alone has the exclusive authority, as he says there in verse 31, to judge the world in righteousness. We're all going to have to face Jesus someday as the judge. He's alive. He's going to hold us accountable to all this idolatry in our hearts. And no one will escape having to give an account of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look at Lord of Lords. Look at verse 30. God commands everyone everywhere. Now let's see, does that leave anybody out? Uh, you think you're an exception to that? Other people around you think they may somehow be an exception to that? In every classroom, there's always some kid that says, uh, can you give me a, a grade on the curve? You know, can you can you give me another chance to take the test? They think they're an exception to the rule. It says, everyone everywhere to turn from idols, that means repent, and to serve God, the true and living God. Only Jesus is able to deliver a person from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
Only Jesus can liberate us from the bondage and the tyranny of idols. Only Jesus can truly satisfy us and for the longings of our hearts. And I want to close with a verse from Psalm 36 in which Brad Bigney so helpfully expounds on here. He says, Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9, we read that those who trust God are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of His house. That is, within His, his realm of His fellowship and those who are with Him. He gives them drink from the river of His pleasure. For with God is the fountain of life. And Bigney says this, Nothing in this world will ever fully satisfy us. The things of this world were never designed to do so. We were made for something bigger, something better, something fuller. We were made with an appetite for God, and nothing else will satisfy. May the Lord have mercy on all of us who are idolaters. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you here, it's very easy to be able to pinpoint other people's idols in their hearts, just like Paul could have walked around and focused on all the different idols around him. But Lord, we know that there's more to that. There's a need to deal with our own idols. And since we're all blind, since we all need help spiritually to see the issues of our hearts, I pray that by your Spirit you would reveal the numerous idols that we all need to deal with and be made aware of. And Father, for those of us who are very much aware of the struggles we have with our own idols, we hate them. We long to see change. We don't want, to, Lord, to rob you of the glory that you deserve, the affection you are rightfully to be receiving from us, to be treasuring you more than these old things of the created world. Lord, for those of us who long for that, Show us once again, more clearly, I pray, the glories of the gospel. Help us to find true forgiveness. And help us also, Lord, to know the glories of finding your love, of knowing that we have gained acceptance through Christ, and that those of us who admit that we are powerless, we don't seem to ever know how to get victory of these things, help us, Lord, to find our hope and confidence in Christ. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who's finally begun to see clearly the own struggles they have with needing to get their, right, their heart right with you, Lord, even today, would you draw them to yourself? May they come to Christ and to the cross. May they receive him as their personal Savior and Lord. We pray this now, Father, as we come to celebrate the gospel again around the Lord's table. May we find you and the sweetness of fellowship with you there. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.